Well, good morning, everybody. Hope everyone is, well, I'm sure everyone here is well. Whatever family fragments are wandering in um, this morning. Well, let me, uh, let me pray for us and we can get started. <clears throat> well, Father, we praise you for union with Christ. One of the most glorious doctrines of our faith. Just how splendid to consider that we are one with Jesus. That that is the Spirit's work. That you have, before the foundation of the world, chosen us and put us in Him. And then over the course of time and history, as He became a man and lived among us and died and was raised and ascended to you, and then He sent His Spirit that we could be indwelt by Him and united to Your Son and to You forever. And so we, we just praise You and thank You for the truth. That this is not make-believe, but this is reality. This is our reality. And so we pray that You would help us to better understand it this morning, that we would be uh, just encouraged and strengthened by our union with Christ, that it would actually change the way we think and feel and live, that it would change the way we see you and how we worship you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, union with Christ, that's lesson 43. Yeah, Galatians 2.20 should be there on the top of your page, but I've been crucified with Christ. Even that right there is sort of a little bit of a statement about being united to Him. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. And so as we just prayed, you know, the, the doctrine of union with Christ is, I mean, truly one of the most glorious of the Christian faith. And even a doctrine that so many other doctrines is attached to as Thomas talked about last week, regeneration, even the truth about regeneration, can't be really rightly understood apart from union with Christ. Uh, adoption uh, as a doctrine, being adopted by God, can't be understood apart from union with Christ. Because in many ways, union with Christ is going to be the means by which all the other graces of God come to us. And so when we were talking about it this week, a few of us, it's like union with Christ, it's like this diamond, this multifaceted diamond that you begin to, you look at it and see the beauty of it and the light shining through it and then you just turn it and you see some other sweet part about it and then you turn it more and it's just a doctrine with a thousand beautiful, glorious sides to it. And so this morning we'll just begin to tackle and talk about just a few of them. It's especially sweet when we think about just the nature of sin and the consequences of our sin. That, you know, in, in, in Genesis 3, when sin entered the world, when Adam and Eve ate that fruit, whether they felt it fully or not, what happened in that moment was separation from God, alienation from God. And so in the day you eat of it, you will die, because in the day they ate of it, they were separated from the very source of their life which was God. And so just reconciliation and redemption and, and God's work of salvation that he's telling the story of through the rest of Scripture is the work of him, okay, reconciling us back to him in whom is the life. 
And he's going to do that by uniting us to Christ, in whom is the life. You know, Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And so being united with in Christ is what's going to flip that around. Where Peter's going to say that Christ came and died in order to bring us to God. So he would actually receive us and hear us and dwell with us forever. So turn to John 14 if you would. That's where we'll start our time. John 14. Someone read verses 15 through 23 for us. Yes, we will come to him, meaning the Father and the Son will come to us and make their home with us. And that's sort of that, that beautiful conclusion to some of what he's saying. But then how is he going to do that? What does it say in verse 17? How will he make his home with us? Through the Spirit. Right, through the Spirit's dwellings, you see there, you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be with you. So verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. But where's Jesus going? To the Father, and what's the whole point of what He's saying here? I'm leaving you. But then He's saying, but I'm coming to you. Well, how's that possible, for Him to leave us and come to us? Well, by the Spirit. And so that's why this, this idea of union with Christ is here in this broader study of the work of the Holy Spirit. Because the Father will, will come to dwell with us through the Son by the Spirit. And it's the Spirit that comes and dwells. And we will know Him because He would dwell in us. But because of that, we will also know the Son because He dwells with us. And because of that, we will also know the Father. So if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. And that that's all going to happen because of what he says in verses 12 through 14 and then 15 and 17. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And what is that day? What's the day you'll know that? When what happens? What's the day he's promising here? What's he going to send? Who's he going to send? The Spirit. So you see the parallel there. In that day, you'll, you'll know me. In that day, I'll be with you. 
And it's the day he's promising is the day he sends the Spirit to make a home with us. So, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, verses 16 and 17, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 6, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And he's going to say right after that, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So he who's joined to the Lord, and who's Paul's talking about right there, is Jesus. Who's joined to the Lord Jesus Christ is one spirit with him. And he's going to go on to say, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. So the way that we become one with the Lord Jesus Christ is by the Spirit dwelling in us and taking a home in us. So yeah, beautiful. What we're going to talk about, we're going to do three things this morning. One is just talk about the nature of our union with Christ. Just to sort of, again, take the diamond and just study these different aspects of it. And when we're talking about union with Christ, what are we saying? What are we not saying? Because in one way, there's just no other religion in the world that has anything close to it, what union with Christ really is and what it means. But then in another way, there's lots of religions in the world that sort of have an idea of oneness with a deity and, and that are sort of variants. And so you, you can think of different religions that are out there. Does Buddhism have a sense of oneness? But what's the sense of oneness they offer? Yeah, you are God. You, you become this God. You know, any kind of pantheism, how do you become one with? What are you becoming one with? Cre- the, the universe, the spirit of the universe, the spirit of creation. And so, you know, with Baal and Baal worship, how did you become one with uh, Asherah and Baal and in worship of them? How did that work? Yes, through temple prostitution, through coming and entering into these rigorous religious rituals that included immorality. And that was the actual means by which you joined yourself. And so, though there's nothing quite like union with Christ, as we'll look at it and show, there, there are certainly lots of ways Satan tries to sort of scratch the itch in the human condition for some kind of oneness with with whatever is out there, or whoever is out there. So we'll look at the nature of that. We'll also look at, secondly, the results of our union with Christ, that what really comes as a result of it. And then thirdly, how should we respond? I mean, just to this truth of union with Christ. So yeah, the nature of our union with Christ. Someone get Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 for us. Someone else get 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 15 through 20. Yeah, so just how often he brings, okay, chose us in him that we would be blameless before him, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Praise to the glory of his grace that he's blessed us in the beloved, who's a reference there to the Son of God. And so three different times in those few verses, you get the sense of, okay, in Christ, through Christ, 
But without question, who's initiating this? Man or God? You know, when were we chosen in Him? I mean, before the foundation of the world. And so this this idea, point A there, that's divinely initiated, not humanly initiated. But then secondly, it's a spiritual union, not a material union. Somebody read 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20 for us. Do you not know that the bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you know, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Yes, it's this idea that the union between a husband and a wife sexually is a visible material union. But then what is that union pointing to? To the spiritual union of Christ and his bride. And so do you not know that you're one spirit with him in the same way that you can be one flesh with another person? And so a reason God gave the gift of the material union is because we can't actually see this spiritual union. So he's saying in the way that you can be one flesh with your spouse, in that way you can be one spirit with the Lord. That he's giving again the image, the material image, to point to this spiritual reality. And so it's important to see that, that again, our union with Christ isn't in that sense of physical union. Though his spirit dwells in our bodies. And, and so again, there's going to be different, whether it's uh, what, what the Catholic tradition is trying to get at in the Eucharist and in communion. Is very much trying to, to get that sense of material, that, that this actually becomes his physical body. Uh, in, in the Lord's table, that you put it into your physical body to try to get some of that taste. In the same way that you can go and worship Baal by joining yourself materially to something, all searching for that, that material union. <clears throat> but it's so important for us to see that that's not actually the nature of our union with Christ. It is a spiritual union that he gives material things to point to it. But it really is, and the reason, and we'll look at it in the next section, that's why faith is important. And the way we, we enter into that union and respond to that union is by, is by faith. See, it's maintaining of personhood, <clears throat> not absorbing. Who knows Galatians 2.20? It kinda, it's there on the top of your first page, but somebody read that. In other words, we don't arrive at a state of nirvana through our union with Christ. Because what's nirvana? Just that, just the teaching of nirvana. What is it? It's like oneness. Oneness with what? That you're sort of absorbed into God. That sort of your the particles of your being gets absorbed into this God being of the universe, and you just get lost in Him. And so, in a way, you lose personhood. You lose identity because you're, it's more of an absorption than it is maintaining of personhood. And that's not how the scripture teaches our union with Christ. That we don't become lost or absorbed into God. 
The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are perfectly one, but yet they're distinct persons. They, they don't get absorbed into one another. They maintain personhood. And so in a similar way that when we've been united to God through Christ, we don't lose who we are. In fact, C.S. Lewis would say we become more fully ourselves. You'll never be more fully yourself than when you're in heaven. In his very presence. And it's in, in 1 John says that we will be just like him because we'll see him as he is, but yet we'll still be ourselves and fully ourselves. You see it a little bit even in the inspiration of Scripture, that all the authors of Scripture, are they recording God's Word? Is it God's revelation? Yes. But do you see Paul in the Pauline epistles? Do you hear Peter in his epistles? Do you hear, okay, Luke's way of saying things? Isaiah's way of putting it? You know, Moses' way of saying it? And so it's fully divine. This is divine scripture. But yet, the the authors of scripture, there's a degree of personality and personhood that's very much maintained. Well, in the same way in our union with Christ, that that we become one with him, but not lost in him, not absorbed in him, but rather there is still a distinction. That's why Paul's going to say, the life that I now live, I live by faith. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But yet he still has pronouns that refer to himself and to Christ in that. Again, marriage is a great picture of it, right? That, that we're, we're one, but we're still distinct persons. We're united, but we're not absorbed into one another. We're very much changed by the union, but we don't disappear Fourthly, our union with Christ is actual, not conceptual. Uh, someone get Second uh, Corinthians five seventeen. Someone would also get Ephesians five twenty nine through thirty two. If someone else would um, actually go back to John fourteen nineteen and twenty, and then if somebody else could get Ephesians four fifteen through sixteen, would be great. Let's go ahead with 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has to be the new. And I think we're meant to see there that this is an actual organic change. Like, we are different. So it's not a conceptual or a theoretical union. Or a, just a conceptual or theoretical where we're, he's not just sort of giving us an image and a construct that we just kind of believe. No, it's actual. It's real. We really are united to Christ. That's why when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, don't go be joined to a prostitute. Because you really are joined to Christ. (laughs) Like your body really is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He really does live in you. And so it really isn't just a theory or an idea or just a religious concept, but something that's very real. Point E, it's also mysterious not fully comprehensible. Go ahead and read Ephesians five, twenty nine through thirty two. So why does he call it a mystery? This mystery is profound. Why is it called a mystery? 
Yeah, that when Adam and Eve, when Eve was brought to Adam and they became one flesh and became married, was, was Christ in the church being expressed in their marriage? Yes. Do you think they knew that? <laughs> no. In every marriage to the Old Testament is sort of, is Christ in the church being foreshadowed? You know, but it was, it was hidden in a way until now Paul's going to say, here it is. And so in one way, it's, it's, it's the church is part of the mystery, but another way, it's just union that's a mystery. And it's a mystery in the old that's revealed in the new, but even it's, as it's revealed, are we able to truly fully comprehend? Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, isn't it like this has to be from him because it can only be um, divinely or spiritually discerned? Like without the spirit, these things, this is not something man would come up with. Right. Right. Yeah, for sure. That when you think of sort of reasons for marriage and the wisdom of the world, what are the reasons? Why marriage? Tax break. <laughs> Absolutely. Like today, how big is that? I mean, how big is just, yeah, just tax breaks? Sense of purpose, cure loneliness. What else? Just fulfillment, just to fill some need, some desire. What else? So just societal pressure. So especially depending on the culture. Like, you probably have a degree of pressure in this culture here in the U.S. to not get married till late. But you can go to other places in the world where, I mean, yeah, your standing societally is connected to whether or not you're, you're married. And if you're 35 and not married, I mean, you, your standing is precarious in that culture. Um, yeah, what other reasons? Tradition. Just tradition, just habit. I mean, how often is it just okay to provide some stable environment for kids? So procreation, raise kids in a stable environment. Yeah, how often is Christ and the church as the reason, you know, as the ultimate reason for why marriage exists, that, that God can help sort of tell the story in visible form of the mystery of Christ and the church? And so that's why Paul's going to say, and to your point, Peter, this mystery, is, it's profound. And that's why he's having to explain it. Um, because how many people do you think are reading this from Paul in <laughs> Ephesus and in Colossae where this letter is circulating around and they're just going, oh, wow. Like who thought marriage pointed to that? And who thought that's really what God had in mind, what he was going to do? That he was going to actually, that, that Christ and the church, that he would take from every tribe and tongue and all the nations. And so that's the other mystery, especially for a Jewish audience as they're listening to this. Oh, that not only is he going to take... Because you know, Jews would have had a certain, I think, sense of understanding the idea of being the bride of God. Just because he'd referred to it in so many ways in the Old Testament, that as Israel as his bride, Israel as the vine. But now to go, okay, the, the idea that Gentiles get grafted in, the idea that the church from every tribe and tongue are all going to be united to Christ and in Christ, that's the profound mystery. That's what nobody really saw coming except some Old Testament prophets and, and authors that God would have revealed it to. And that's why after you know, Peter you know, goes to Caesarea, meets with Cornelius, and goes in their house and begins preaching, and as he's preaching, you know, the Spirit descends. There's all these evidences and signs that, okay, the Spirit just took up residence in all these Gentiles. 
just as he did us. Remember, he goes back to Jerusalem. There's a lot of people upset at him because they heard you went in and had fellowship with Gentiles. And then he just told the story. Well, here's what happened. As we're there, and the Spirit descends and fills them, and so this union with God gets extended to the gen- And then what does everybody say to him after that? Yeah, they're like, well, then, I guess God's saving Gentiles now. And they praise God. I mean, they had nothing to say. And you even see in it, this is why even you're going to have tongues in the book of Acts. This is why you're going to see, okay, it's going to wait until an apostle gets there and lays on hands. Because what God is really trying to do is reveal this mystery. That at each stage of the gospel going out, he wants the Jewish church to make sure they identify with Caesarea and identify at Antioch and identify at Ephesus. Like this is all one work of God, of God building one church united in Christ so that they're all clear. They're all getting the same spirit. They're all getting the same Lord. They're all getting the same gospel. They're all part of the same. And so that's why like he's going to wait for Peter to get there, for Paul to get there. For apostles to get there and sort of lay hands or preach whatever it is, and then they can see the Spirit descend. And they can see the same evidence they did in Acts 2 at Pentecost. So they all know, okay, the thing that God's doing right now in this house with Cornelius and all his friends is the thing he did to us in Acts 2. The thing he's doing at Antioch, the thing he's doing at Ephesus, it's the same thing he did there. So nobody gets to go, okay, there's two churches There's the Gentile one and the Jewish one. It's just one church, all united together in Christ. So that's part of what is is mysterious. And so we get some revelation now where we see the mystery, but then I don't think we're going to fully comprehend all of it until we get there. Yes, Katie? I was going to say, you know, back to the world defining it based on condition or society or what I want or my needs, that's why they can so easily change it. Yes. Yeah, when he says, okay, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Um, and so just that, you'd have to think that, you know, in, by way of implication, it also means or rearrange the terms of it or redefine what it means or how it works. So, yeah, if you just take God out of anything, then it's amazing how much you can just change, which is why you've got to get God out of it <laughs> so that you can change it. Um, Point F, it's also a life-giving union, not a mechanical union. And so someone read again that John 14, 19 through 20. Isn't that an interesting statement that because I live, you will live? Who of us can say that to anybody else? Like, can I look at my at Ruth and go, you know what, honey? Because I live, you live. Why is that not true? <laughs> Why is it not true? I can't give her life. It's she doesn't live because my life is in her. Um, and so, just that Jesus would say, because I live, you live. And where is Jesus? He's in heaven. Just that statement that, okay, because I live, is a, is a statement about the Spirit, Him living in us through the Spirit. 
And so therefore, union with Christ really is life-giving. It's not just mechanical uh, in that way. It actually produces life because in him is the life. And so that's why we can't understand regeneration without understanding this. Because God doesn't just sort of snap his fingers and then, oh, we come to life in and of ourselves. But rather, that's not just a work of his spirit, but now as New Covenant Christians, it's, it's Jesus be, and being united to him in whom is the life. It's also symbiotic, and what I mean by that is not unilateral. Somebody read Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, and then someone get ready Ephesians 5, 32 through 33. In other words, though, though our union with Christ begins unilaterally, He initiates it. He sends the Spirit. The Spirit enters and gives life. It doesn't continue unilaterally. Like, by symbiotic, I mean, there, there's, it's back and forth. And now we respond. Not just in faith, but even what Paul's saying here, but now, speaking truth and love, we grow up in every way. Into him who is our head, that is Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. So you just think of your physical body, and is your head the head? And your central nervous system does so much. But what if sort of the body is just removed from the head? Neither, real, neither one really continues in the state in which it was before. So while we depend on the head, and Jesus doesn't depend on us, he has, however, arranged it in such a way that there's cooperation. And so now this union is something where there's a give and response. There's a speak and a listen. There's a hear and a do. It really is a relationship. Peter? But they're the body and the head, but they're not interdependent. That was kind of like... Yeah. Interdependent? No, because the head doesn't really need... Yeah, so no, I think there is dependency on our part. And so, yeah, he doesn't need us. His life isn't derived from us. But yet, we, the whole purpose of God, though, is wrapped up in the union of the two. And so while it, for Jesus it isn't a need thing, it is a, for this purpose the Father sent me. I mean, to take this people for myself and to be joined to them. And, and, and so part of what I'm getting at here is just the body isn't a dead corpse. So it isn't a living head attached to a dead body. It's a living head attached to a living body with a body that is being responsive. We'll see it especially here in uh, Ephesians 5, 32 and 33. Somebody read that. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. Yeah, and why is a wife to see that she respects her husband? What's the reason given there? That's how the church responds to Christ. Well, why would he say that unless the church is not supposed to respond to Christ that way? The church is to give him honor, to give him respect. So wives, be this way with your husband, because that's how the church is with Christ. And, so the, and that's part of what I mean by it's symbiotic, not just unilateral. We don't just lay there and just receive, receive, receive. That we're actually, once brought to life, we respond. It's also point H, it's direct, not indirect, Somebody read John 17, 
20 through Yeah, and so I think there's a fact we just cannot miss in what Jesus is praying here, and that is that our union with the Lord is direct and personal. It's not mediated by other humans. I mean, that He will be in us, and us in Him. And so again, this gets at any other sort of religion or belief that says, okay, you can only be united to God through the leaders of the church. You can only be united to God through the church itself. You can only be united to God through whatever other things or created things that are sort of here that's going to mediate it. No, we don't get that. Right? Each of us individually are directly united to Christ. And, there's no, and that's why Paul can say things like, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes down and lists all these created things. Why can he say, okay, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ? How can he say that? We're not dependent on any of those things. I mean, the, none of those things mediate our union with Christ. It's direct and personal. And so that's why Paul can say that with confidence, that another human being can't separate you from the love of God that's in Christ. That another, you know, church or leaders or whatever it may be, or sickness or death, none of those things are going to separate you because your union with him is, is direct and personal. It's also point I there, comprehensive, not partial. I was reading this morning in Romans 1, and I just don't, I love how you read the Bible, there's just things you thought, when did that phrase get put there? I don't remember that ever before. Where it's talking about verse 4, Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 1, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Just that phrase, called to belong to him. That, that his ownership of us is not partial. He doesn't look at it and go, okay, here, I just really want this part of your life. How much of it does he want? The whole thing. And so it is a comprehensive union, not a partial union. And that's why even any kind of Gnostic thinking of, okay, body, evil, spirit, good, what you do in the body doesn't matter, what you do in the spirit is what really matters, um, that, that God just wants this, not this, is just not true. Because union with Christ means he gets, he gets the whole thing. He gets every part of us. In Christ we have died to the elemental spirits of the world. And Paul's going to say the Colossians, and have been, I love this phrase, hidden with Christ in God. How much of us hidden with Christ in God? Every part. You get this idea that in totality we are hidden with Christ 
in God. So our souls, our bodies belong to him completely forever. Which is why if we just take one part of our life and just do with it whatever we please, what is that called? What does the Bible call it? Lots of different things, I guess. Could be idolatry, sin, hypocrisy. But even in the word idolatry, you get this idea of unfaithfulness, disobedience, rebellion. Well, why? Why can't I just take this one area of my life, how I use money, and that's mine? Well, because he's purchased all of it. And so the language now that when God says, okay, to take you as my own possession... He really doesn't mean just a little bit of it. Um, How much of me do you think my wife wants married to her? And what if I say, don't worry, honey, I'll give you the best part of me. And she goes, okay, that's cool. What does she want? Yeah, Yeah, all of it. (laughs) All of it. Not a little bit of it. That's why, and does she want to be one among many lovers? And what if I say to her, hey, don't worry, honey, you're my favorite. <laughs> of all my lovers, you're the best. Does she go, wow, that's really honoring. <laughs> no, does she just want to be one among many? Even the top one. Only. Exclusive. Comprehensive. Not partial. And so, how much more in our union with Christ? Yes, Rachel. Uh, just capping the obvious today. Um, yeah. Say that again. What if Christ just hid part of us? It's like, oh, the rest of the guys are going to have to figure that out on your own. Yeah. I mean, you just think about how scary that is. That Okay, there's going to be... Because, yeah, whatever part of us isn't hidden in him isn't going to make it home. And so, in a way, while it's to our flesh, it's a suffocating doctrine. To the spirit, uh, to the new person, it is a liberating, beautiful doctrine. The idea, okay, he has all of it. He's going to take care of all of it. He's going to love and care about all of it. That's great. It's also point J. It's abiding, not transient. You know, just that image in John 15 of a vine and branches. And so we don't sort of come and go. Um, you know, Ruth's mom was telling me this morning a story of just an extended family member who just years ago when they were living, he would just come and go as he pleased. You know, he would be there and then he'd go out to the store to get a loaf of bread and wouldn't come back for six months. Uh, and then would come back for a little while and would go out to get whatever and would just be gone. And so just that, that's not union with Christ. Just a transient, come and go sort of union. No, it's abiding. Like if we're for 10 minutes separated from him, what happens? According to Jesus' words, can we live? Can we survive? No. And so, so yes, branches abide in the vine. So we abide in Christ. It's a constant thing. Was that your hand going up? It was stretching. It's also for that reason secure, not vulnerable. We just read in Colossians 3 about being hidden uh, with Christ in God. You know, it's something that can't be broken. It's really actually not vulnerable. Yeah, Paul in Romans 8, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then finally, it's permanent, not temporal. So it isn't that we're, we get to heaven and then union with Christ ceases. No, that we were chosen to be put in Him, and that is forever. 
that our union with Him. So our, our earthly marriages, you know, in heaven we will not be uh, married or given in marriage, according to Jesus. We'll all be like angels in that sense. But yet, why won't we be given to other humans in marriage? Who will we be given to in marriage? To Him. So it won't be that we're not married. We just won't be married in this sense. So there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation when we get there, where it's going to be now consummated, that that union that is going to be forever. Yep, well, it goes back to the, 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 the picture of marriage is really a union with Christ. Well, when you have the real thing, what do you need the, the picture for anymore? Right. And so now we're there, we're in it, and we're going to see it, hear it, experience it firsthand, body, soul, everything. And so, yeah, the idea of needing the picture anymore, that's going to fade away. Yeah. Any other questions about just nature of union with Christ or comments? Well, the results of our union with Christ, we've already sort of talked about some of these, but the first one there, point A, is is life. That in Him we live. And so we could use the word here, regeneration, or born again or new life, that union with Christ brings us from death to life. And so is it that, okay, we get united by Christ, with Christ, and then four seconds later we get regenerated, and who knows the sequence? It's just all wrapped up in there together somehow. And that's some of the mystery of it is so much when the body, you know, Scripture will slow down and sort of break out the pieces so that we can kind of see Okay, sort of justification and regeneration and propitiation and adoption and all these. But yet it's just such one big ball of God's saving work that, that we need to make sure after we've pulled it out and looked at it, we put it all back and see it as kind of one big work of God that he does in us and through Christ. Yeah, secondly, faith. You know, just that Paul would say that the life we now live is by faith. Well, why is the life we now live by faith? Yeah, so there's one. We don't see him. He's not in front of us. It's by faith. But how is it we're able to live by faith? What actually happened in Galatians 2? We got united to Christ. That we're now, it's no longer I live, but Christ in me. And that's why the life I now live is by faith. And so because Christ is in me, I'm able to believe. Because Christ is in, you know, as he's going to say, you know, the Spirit's going to come and dwell with you, then you'll know. Then you'll be able to believe. You'll understand. You'll comprehend. You'll know me. You'll know the Father because the Spirit will be in you. And so what it means is even our capacity to live by faith can't be separated from union with Christ. Um, Thirdly, yeah, imputation. That because of our union with Christ and by imputation means that His righteousness is credited to us. That our sin was put on Him and borne away. His righteousness now covers us. That's why you know, his, his death counts as our death. It's actually because of union with Christ. That's why Paul can say, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Well, that's a statement about union. Because of union, His death counts for us. His resurrection is our resurrection. You think in Romans 5 where, so Adam sinned, and therefore we were all born in sin. 
Well, why? Because he was our federal head. He was our representative. And so he represented us in his sin. So we certainly descend from him and his progeny as human beings, but then also just he represented us. Well, now we have a new head. Who's our new head? It's Christ, and, and he represents us. So even that language of, okay, head, body, union, and because he's our new head, his righteousness counts as our righteousness. His death and his resurrection count for us um, being in him. And so, yeah, just that's, that's what we mean there by imputation. Yeah, fourthly, justification. That because we've been imputed with the righteousness of Christ, because it's been credited to us, that the Father can look at us and say what? Righteous. You know, He can actually declare us holy. Being filled with the Holy Spirit and united to the one who is holy, who has also taken away all our sin, that the Father can actually look at us and declare us righteous and justify us. And so not just justification now, but on that day, because we haven't really stood before him yet, right? And so that's why just this understanding of union with Christ and how abiding it is, how secure, not vulnerable it is, is important for your confidence on the last day. Because we're going to all, we still are yet to stand before him. And what's our only hope? That we would have achieved enough righteousness by the time we die because Jesus helped us out? Or is it we're going to get there and go, I'm with him. Whatever else happens here, we're just going to walk over and just stand right with Jesus and go, okay, he, I'm with him. And where the Father can go, yes, you are. You're united. You're together. You're married. So we're even adopted in and forgiven because through marriage, through union with him. Yeah, and there's adoption. That's the next thing. That just the very means of our adoption is union with him. So, so Ruth's mom, did she, on our wedding day, in a way, adopt me? Am I now, in a sense, her son-in-law? And so here, though, we have with, with Christ, okay, we, we don't just become his sons-in-law. I mean, we become his sons in reality. Because our union with Christ is even more serious, eternal, than our union with an earthly spouse. So yeah, adoption is even the fact that we can call ourselves sons and daughters of God is because of union with Christ. Yeah, sanctification. Yeah, somebody get 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And then someone else get Romans 12, 5. And someone else get John 17, 22 through 23. Go ahead with 2 Corinthians 3. Yeah, beholding with unveiled face the glory of the Lord. I think beholding Him through the Scriptures, even, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. And it comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And, and so where is the Spirit doing that work? Well, well, in us. So we're seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, being united to the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Spirit is conforming us to His image, one degree at a time. So even our sanctification is the result of union. The idea that, okay, I'm confident of this, that he who begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. 
Well, that good work he begun in us started with union with Christ, and it's going to persist and continue in that. So even our sanctification is dependent on union. The church is a result of union with Christ. Let me read Romans twelve five for us. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Yeah, so we who are many are one. Why? What's the phrase there? Read it again, Tim. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. One body in Christ. Individually members with one another. And so just the church is the result of union with Christ. That we're united to one another because we're each united to him. And what makes this encouraging? Is there anything that we can do to destroy the unity of the church? We'll get to this on the next point. Mm -mm. Are we told anywhere in the Bible to create unity? Uh -uh. What are we told to do? Preserve the unity. You know, that, that live in unity. So even there's an encouragement in the fact that we don't create that. We don't create the church. We don't build the church. We are the church. We are the stones that, that sort of the Lord is building one on the other into the church. And now what we do is we love the church and delight in the church and serve the church and give glory to God in the church and, and be the church. But we don't make it. <laughs> We don't create it. And in the same way after that, even unity with God and others, that, that we don't create unity. Or even you think about unity in marriage, that what does it say? Um, okay, be careful. Do not separate what, what, what God has joined together. And to me, a confidence in that is I think you actually have to work to destroy a marriage. I really do. I think it's hard to grow and to be married well. But I actually think it's also really hard to kill your marriage. Why is it really hard to destroy your marriage? Because God put it together. And so you have to put some real time and energy into harming it. I mean, you've got to devote some days and some months and some years into dismantling it. So we shouldn't for a minute think, because it's so easy to go down and get a divorce, that it's actually that easy to just... Destroy, and, and I think that's meant to give us confidence. I think that's meant to give us hope that, that God puts those things together and is for it and is working for it and is strengthening it. And so greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. And so I think the, the amount of help we have making unity work is much greater than the obstacles that we have. Um, we just have to remember it. Yeah, unity with God and others is a result of union with Christ. But then also communion. That in Christ we are united to God and one another and therefore have fellowship with God and one another. I actually like this distinction. You know, John Owen made the distinction between union and communion in that there's nothing we can do to change our union with Christ. But we can jack up our communion with him pretty bad. Like there's nothing we can do to change and mess up our union with one another but we can harm our communion. We can do things that really disrupt and make that part sour. And so I thought, you know, it's helpful to have that distinct union and communion. And that communion needs union. Uh, but that that's the part that we're actually responsible for really preserving and pouring into. 
So is it that you get up in the morning, you open the Word of God, and you begin to read, and now all of a sudden you're united to Christ? No, or are you now communing with Him? You, you woke up, you slept, united to Him. You're united to Him when you're unconscious, but you begin to respond in prayer, you begin to walk in His Spirit, you begin to think about Him and adore Him and worship Him, and what that's doing is it's communion that's founded on that union. Yeah, this is John and First John. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so he's just talking there about the communion that comes among the saints who, who believe and are joined to the same head. Any questions about results of union with Christ or comments? All right. Well, proper response. As we already said, we're not united to Christ so that we can be a dead carcass that he just sort of pulls into glory, but so that we can be a, a living body that is attached to him. And so what's our proper response? We already saw this in Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, and that's this word submission which should lead to, to a very willing and a very happy kind of obedience. And so just submission to him is a, is a, a proper response to union. Because um, this is someone who, yeah, d- what does he deserve from us? Everything. Everything. And is our union to him a gift? Is it a good thing? So even in our submission, our being, should it be grudging or begrudging or irritated or frustrated? Now it's going to feel that way at times because of the flesh. But yet submission with happy obedience is something our union with Christ deserves. Yes, secondly, grieving sin, which leads to repentance. I think not only is grief of sin a result of our union, but it's also a proper response to it. You know, again, back to 1 Corinthians 6 that we were looking at. Why should we grieve sexual immorality? Paul said, do you not know that what? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Do you not know that he joins himself to the Lord as one spirit with him? Which means when I sin against the temple. That's, I think that's, one, that's the context of Paul saying... The sexually immoral man sins in a unique way. Why? Because he sins against the body. Why does that matter? Well, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Go ahead, Peter. It grieves the Father. Yeah, it grieves the Father. And so in the same way, so that's a great point. So when our spouses are sad or someone we really love is sad, what do we feel? We should feel sadness. Hopefully we weep with those who weep. So how much more if we're united to the Son and by the Son united to the Father and our sin grieves Him, what should it do to us? Grieve us. Not just because of the sin itself, but why else? Because of the grief we cause. You know, Jesus is going to go to the, the, the tomb of Lazarus and He's going to see all these people weeping. And what's He going to do? He's going to weep. Why? Because Lazarus is dead? I don't think so. Especially the context. It says, in Jesus, seeing them all. 
who are weeping, he's going to weep. So why did he weep? Because they were weeping. Why was he sad? Because they were sad. So there's something that he felt it, what they felt, even though he knew what he was about to do. That's he's about to bring. So clearly it's not about Lazarus. He's about to bring him out. But like he sees their grief and he feels grief. So how much more when we live in such a way that grieves the father, grieves the son, that we would feel grief, both for the sin itself, but then also just for the, for the trouble, the pain, the offense that it causes. And so I say that, too, so that we wouldn't just make, reduce our relationship with the Lord to something merely judicial, that we violated God's law. There he is sitting up there, and he looks down, and, oh, here's what we did wrong, sentence. But it's also a marriage, that there's something about, you know, none of us go into a courtroom and feel some sense of union with the judge, right? And so, and how many of us have ever seen a scene in the courtroom where the judge just starts to cry? It's just all so sad. You don't see it, you usually see a very detached, sort of justice is blind, objective. You have to think of, of God actually being grieved by sin, the Holy Spirit actually looking down and seeing, fighting in the church, Ephesians 4, bitter words, harsh treatment of one another, and it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit, meaning that's really what grieves him, is in the context of that grief, it's looking down in the church and seeing a lack of love for one another, harsh words to one another. So how much more when we see it should we, should we grieve? Our sin, grieve others' sin. But also, point C, joy, which leads to rejoicing. Yes, I'm going to get 1 John 1, 3 through 5. First John 1, 3 through 5. Love that. So we're writing these things to you so you'd believe and have fellowship. But then again, parallel word, and we're writing these things to you so that your joy may be complete. And so wrapped up in fellowship with Father, fellowship with Son, fellowship with one another is joy complete. And that's just so important if we want to think about, you know, just where is joy found? You know, it's, it is a fruit of the Spirit. But then it's a fruit of the Spirit, too, that's sort of cultivated in this communion with Father, Son, and one another. And so if we really want joy complete, well then, this is part of our response to union with Christ. That John is writing this, and he's thinking those who are reading it ought to go, wow, joy. So we ought to have joy that we're united to God. We ought to have joy that we're united to one another. Again, back to this picture of marriage. I mean, how many of our spouses want us to go, you know what, I'm in this till the end, till death. Now it's miserable. Um, Being married to you is really awful, but I'm going to see it through to the end. And again, do they hear that and go, wow, that's so loving. (laughs) That's what I was hoping for too. Or again, we want more than just 
get it to the end, just duty. Is there meant to be joy? Is there meant to be gladness? Is there meant to be sort of thanksgiving? And so how much more is a proper response to our union with Christ, to our marriage, to be actual happiness and joy in it? But then also comfort, which leads to peace and patience. So when Jesus is talking to them about the Spirit coming, being united to him through the Spirit, what's he actually doing with his disciples in that moment? Because they're kind of sad about something. What is it? He's going to the Father. And they're sad. And so he's, he's going to comfort them. And that's what he's actually doing. He's comforting them with the doctrine of union with Christ. He's comforting them with, I'm going to send the helper, the comforter. He's going to be with you and we're all going to be together. We're all going to be united to one another. And so Jesus thinks as he says that, that's meant to be comforting. Um, so we have to ask ourselves, does it comfort me when afflicted? Does it comfort me when downcast? Does it comfort me when life is troubling to know okay, I'm united to him? I'm in the Son. I'm with the Father. The Spirit's in me. And so, yeah, we have to go, okay, is this a source of joy for me? Is this a source of comfort for me? Is this a source of, as we'll look at here, holy fear? You know, and even just the fear of when, when Paul's talking to the Corinthians about being one spirit with the Lord and to join yourself to a prostitute. What he's saying there is you are a member of Christ. When you join in that sin, you join Christ to that sin. You're uniting him to it because you're his body. (laughs) You're a member of Christ. Think about what holy fear should that produce? What sort of desire for holiness should it produce to go okay, he is holy, and I am now a member of Christ. Should I not sort of now have reverence and awe for how I use my time? Reverence and awe for the use of my body. Reverence and awe for, you know, fill in the blank. More over time, as usual. Um, Johnny, you want to pray for us? Amen.